This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your intelligence analyst, Peter Korchnak. Five years ago, a court in Munich, Germany, convicted and sentenced to life in prison two elderly citizens of Croatia, Zdravko Mustac and Josip Perković, for aiding and abetting a decades-old murder of their compatriot Stepan Jurekovic. In July 1983, a team of unknown assailants killed Jurekovic, a Croat Yugoslav emigre, in his garage in a Munich suburb. Jurekovic's was no ordinary murder. Rather, it was yet another in a string of assassinations the Yugoslav State Security Service, the UDBA, had been carrying out against enemies of the state since the socialist country's founding. And Mustach and Perković were no ordinary retirees, but rather high-ranking officers of the UDBA at the time. Up to that point in 2016, they and their informant in the case were the only individuals convicted and imprisoned for assassinating Yugoslavs abroad. This is not a good guys versus bad guys story. Far surpassing its Eastern Bloc counterparts, Yugoslavia was the most aggressive among socialist countries in using assassinations as a means of protecting the state and the Communist Party. Over its 45-year existence, the Udba dropped at least 80 and by some estimates over 100 bodies of its political enemies, mostly Croats, abroad some with the contracted assistance of Yugoslav mobsters. And after the death of Yugoslavia, members of state security services and their organized crime friends have played important roles in the newly independent states. There is a saying that you should speak only nice things about the deceased. Serbian saying. So people nowadays are very Yugo-nostalgic and they keep forgetting some shady stuff which actually happened and are in the root of that country. Today on Remembering Yugoslavia, some shady stuff indeed. Before we pull the trigger on the story of state-sponsored assassinations of Yugoslav emigres, remember that it is your operational support that makes this story and this podcast possible. I am so grateful to every one of you who has stepped up and joined Remembering Yugoslavia as a supporter. Welcome and thank you new sustainers Jen and Nicolette, and thank you Billy for your super generous repeat donation. If you like the show, kill me with your generosity and join these and many other agents in Operation Goldfish. Visit rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate to make a contribution today. Before socialist Yugoslavia was even established, it gave the world the most famous spy. To be more accurate, a Serbian man named Popov, Dusko Popov, was the inspiration for Ian Fleming's uh, James Bond. Paul Vidic is the author of four Cold War era espionage novels with a fifth one upcoming. During World War II, he left uh, Belgrade, he went to London and then found himself sent to Beirut because he spoke a number of languages. He um, became friendly with a number of German generals and the British discovered that and then used him uh, as a back channel to acquire a lot of information about what was happening in Germany. But he was a bit of a ladies' man. He was a big gambler. And uh, Ian Fleming bumped into him in Lisbon in, I think, 1941-42. Ian Fleming at the time was part of MI6. And uh, this character, uh, the Serbian, became the, uh, the inspiration for the James Bond character. So while the Balkans didn't produce a whole lot of um, settings for international spy novels, they did inspire one of the world's most well-known spies. 
During World War II, shortly after the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia was established in 1943, the partisans founded Odjelenje za zaštitu naroda, meaning the Department for People's Protection, better known under its acronym OZNA, O-Z-N-A. Its role, to defend the nascent country from its enemies within and without. The agency quickly acquired a reputation. A popular saying went, OZNA svedozna, OZNA will find out everything. Shortly after the war, a new organization succeeded OZNA. Uprava Državne Bezbednosti, the State Security Administration, later Service, was better known under its original acronym UDBA, U-D-B-A. And people knew that UDBA is UDBA, UDBA is fate. A state security service is something that almost all modern states have. There's nothing inherently sinister about a state security service. There's nothing uh, inherently communist about a state security service. Christian Axbo Nielsen is associate professor at Aarhus University in Denmark, researching the police in socialist Yugoslavia. In a way, Udba was Nielsen's fate as well. He was an expert witness in Mustaches and Perkovic's trial, and he turned his report to the court into the book Yugoslavia and Political Assassinations, the History and Legacy of Tito's Campaign Against the Emigres, published last year by I.B. Torres, an imprint of Bloomsbury Publishing. I'm running a giveaway for the book on Remembering Yugoslavia's Instagram and Facebook pages, so head over there and enter for a chance to win. The State Security Service exists, uh, as the name would indicate, to protect the security of the state and, in most cases, to protect the constitutional order of that state. Of course, in the case of communist countries, which were party states in which there was only one uh, legal party, that being the Communist Party, Uh, we have the specific situation that the Yugoslav State Security Service, like other communist state security services, was trying to protect not only the state, but also the party. Because of its World War II history and its unique position in the Cold War geopolitical system, there were a whole heck of a lot of actors, both inside Yugoslavia and outside Yugoslavia, who were out to undermine or even destroy Yugoslavia. There were extreme Serb nationalists who despised communist Yugoslavia. There were uh, even a handful of extreme Slovene nationalists who despised Yugoslavia. There were plenty of ethnic Albanians outside of Yugoslavia who conspired against Yugoslavia, etc. But the Croats, not least because of this genocidal legacy of the independent state of Croatia, and because they were quite numerous, uh, were very much the premier non-foreign state threat to Yugoslav state security. And the Udbar required a heck of a lot of people to deal with these threats. I think the estimate is that there were 100,000 men and women who worked for uh, the UDB at that time. Of course, in the early days, it was almost exclusively people who had been members of the partisan movement during the Second World War. Once we get to a later stage, into the 50s and 60s, a lot of the people who were recruited into the Yugoslav State Security Service were people who had studied law and social sciences. Many of them were uh, people who, for various reasons, patriotism, coming from communist families, uh, had a very large appreciation for the communist state and wanted to help protect it. Again, you know, there's nothing inherently sinister for a person in the 1960s or 70s to want to go and make a career in in the state security service. Udba's basic training entailed two years of physical training, language courses, and coursework in intelligence operations and criminal investigations. 
Agents stationed abroad operated under deep cover as employees of embassies, consulates, or airline or tourist bureaus. The Udba barely got its feet underneath it and eyes all over when in 1948 Tito said no to Stalin. At the time, Tito's biggest fear, his paranoia, was that the Soviets would try to assassinate him, remove him, and create a coup that allowed them to take over and annex Yugoslavia. According to one account, the Soviets made 22 attempts on Tito's life over the years. One of the alleged schemes had the assassin, a Soviet spy codenamed Max, who had helped arrange Leon Trotsky's death in Mexico and who was Costa Rica's ambassador to Yugoslavia, give Tito a present in the form of a jewel box that, when opened, would emit a lethal gas. Other alternatives included releasing plague bacteria at one of Tito's diplomatic receptions or shooting Tito with a silent weapon concealed in a pen, lighter, cane, or briefcase. Others say there were no such attempts made. At any rate, after Stalin died, a letter was found under a newspaper in his desk drawer. The note, written in 1950, was from Josip Brostito. Stalin, stop sending assassins to murder me. We have already caught five, one with a bomb, another with a rifle. If you don't stop sending killers, I will send one to Moscow, and there will be no need to send another. In 1955, Stalin's successor Nikita Khrushchev visited Belgrade, apologized to Tito for the assassination attempts, and congratulated him on his survival. Tito allegedly smiled and said, after many warnings, Stalin evidently got a bit scared. The 1948-Tito-Stalin split is an enormous shock to the Yugoslav state and, and therefore also to the Yugoslav state security service where they're suddenly in the position that they almost don't have any friends anywhere in the world and they are in an adversarial relationship with both the capitalist West and the Soviet-led communist East. And that falling out was uh, considered a very important event by the United States because they were seeking to cleave from the Eastern Bloc as many countries as they could. There was a great deal of concern in the CIA and the White House that Stalin would take advantage of the Korean War and, in effect, launch a second front and invade Yugoslavia from Romania. The Yugoslav secret police um, during that period of time were very engaged in seeking out Slovenians, Serbians, Croatians who were sympathetic to the Soviet Union and to communism. Even though Yugoslavia left the Soviet bloc, that didn't by any stretch of the imagination mean that they jettisoned the communist mode of establishing and operating state security and intelligence services. Many of the Yugoslav security forces had been trained in the Soviet Union. They used the same techniques as the KGB used for the NKVD. They just repurposed that. And after 1948, Yugoslavia is using Stalinist methods to combat Stalinists within Yugoslavia uh, and abroad. Throughout its existence, the Yugoslav State Security Service, the UDBA, had its eye on a number of internal enemies. It's an extremely broad spectrum. And I mean, if you go to the uh, relevant archives, one can really be thinking, wow, I mean, are they really that afraid of that many different categories of actors? And the answer is yes. I mean, they're protecting the Communist Party state against anyone who would in any way, shape or form seek to undermine or destroy that state. So we can start with 
all kinds of nationalists, from Slovene nationalists to Kosovo-Albanian nationalists. We can talk about uh, religious groups from, again, uh, Muslim clergy, Orthodox clergy, Catholic clergy, various more um, non-traditional denominations such as Jehovah's Witnesses. We can talk about various uh, human rights groups, Amnesty International, for example, or anyone associated with Amnesty International. We can talk about critical thinkers, such as the famous Praxis group of uh, philosophers and others that emerged in Yugoslavia. We can talk about people around Milo Vangelis, anarcho-liberalists. This would be anybody who would advocate a more kind of pluralist Western system. All tourists, all exchange students, all foreign journalists, all foreign diplomats, prominent researchers as well. All of these people were suspicious in the eyes of the Yugoslav State Security Service. I mean, I have friends who are now my colleagues in academia. Some of them are a bit older than me and had the opportunity to visit Yugoslavia in the 1970s and 1980s. And it's not that unusual that I write to them or call them up and say, hey, Kevin, you know, guess what? I was sitting in the Slovenian archive and I came across your name. Uh, You visited Zagreb for the first time in 1983. Is that correct? I found your file. I found what they were writing about you. One of these foreigners was Vidic's father, Arthur Vidic. He had just graduated from Harvard, had a one-year residency in London at the London School of Economics. And a friend of his happened to work at the Voice of America and discovering that my father was going to London, uh, asked my father if he would uh, take a side trip to Yugoslavia and do some research for the Voice of America. And my father needed the money. It was $500 at the time. And he was also very interested in visiting the small town in Slovenia where his parents had been born, which is a town called Kropa. He was going to go there under the auspices of the State Department, which was in charge of the Voice of America at the time. But the ambassador, the American ambassador to Yugoslavia at the time, didn't want any direct connection between the State Department and Arthur Vidic's research for fear that if it became public, that it would somehow affect Yugoslav-American relations. So he uh, instead traveled without official cover from London to uh, Slovenia uh, with my mother. And there were two young children. One was six weeks. That was me and my older brother, who was three years old. And the research that he was doing was basically to establish what public opinion was towards the Soviet Union, towards Tito, and towards the United States. And at the time, that research was interesting to the Voice of America because they were broadcasting into uh, Yugoslavia along with the BBC. And they were curious how they should shape their programming in order to present the United States sort of in the best possible light. With that remit, he um, took the train, the Orient Express, from Paris down to Trieste, and then um, they uh, transferred to a local train. And uh, at the time they entered, in May 1951, they were among the first Americans to enter Yugoslavia, you know, since before the war. And he thought of himself a bit like an amateur spy, although 
he wasn't working for the CIA, but he had some concerns about you know, the questions he would be asking a whole variety of people. 1951 was also the year that Stepan Jurekovic, the Croat emigre assassinated in Munich, graduated from the University of Belgrade with a degree in economics. And then he set about doing his, his research. And he was a bit of an odd character in a way because he was an American and there hadn't been Americans who had visited uh, Yugoslavia. But on the other hand, many Yugoslavs had seen relatives emigrate to the United States. So there was a, a, a sort of a, a familiarity and an embrace of this stranger who arrived in uh, to discover his homeland. He conducted 42 interviews over several hours each in homes, in airport waiting rooms, cafes, farms, offices. Among the people talked to were factory workers, party leaders, the old bourgeoisie, farmers, plant managers, students, relatives. And secretly, he typed up his notes at night on a portable Smith Corona and um, produced a 115-page report that uh, was sort of a snapshot assessment of popular opinions toward, you know, the Cold War adversaries. Given the sensitive geopolitical situation and Yugoslavia's paranoid outlook at the time, it's difficult to imagine that Arthur Vidig wasn't on Udba's radar. If his interviews had been... Um, collected by the UDBA, they probably would have created a lot of suspicion about his work. Because in Yugoslavia at that time, these types of opinions, you would share only with people you trusted, because it was inflammatory politically to openly address um, questions about uh, loyalty to Tito and concerns about the Soviet Union. I suspect that a lot of the ease with which he was able to make contacts and move around the country had to do with the fact that his relatives were their couple's senior party members. And by virtue of being family and a party member, and given the sort of the political overtones of everything, they were willing to excuse him in a way that they might not have excused somebody who simply shows up with a passport who happens to be an American. Vidic researched the Udba archives in Slovenia and Croatia, but came away empty-handed. Unfortunately, the UDBA files in Belgrade remain closed and secret, and so I don't know what information they had on uh, my father. I assume they hold some information, because when you look at the files that are available, they had a vast amount of information about the most minuscule things. And an American traveling around the country interviewing that many people that openly uh, would have created some interest. So I suspect that they were watching him very closely, but they might have taken the view that whatever he was doing was probably going to help American Yugoslav relations. His questions about public attitudes towards the Soviet Union, towards the United States, might well have been seen as a, as a helpful investigation towards some sort of a rapprochement between the United States and Yugoslavia. Upon his return to the U.S., Arthur Vidig was questioned by suits presumably from the CIA. So here they had Arthur Vidic, who had interviewed 42 people from all walks of life across the country delivering some of the most 
interesting and most accurate social intelligence about a country that was uh, in a pivotal position in the Cold War. In mid-1950s, Jurekovic, a partisan in World War II, married and had a son. He also started working at an oil refinery in Sisak, Croatia, a career decision that would seal his fate three decades later. Beginning in the 1960s, Yugoslavia found its own third way inside and out with market socialism, self-management, open borders, Western economic assistance, and non-alignment. Thousands of Yugoslavs took advantage of their government's agreements with West Germany, Austria, France, Sweden, and other Western countries. Most went to West Germany, where they became the Gastarbeiter, guest workers. In 1971, the Yugoslav Foreign Affairs Ministry counted over half a million Gastarbeiter abroad. Yugoslavia's population was over 20 million at the time. Of course, the challenge, if you're the Yugoslav State Security Service, what you're immediately thinking is, well, wait a second, if Croats from Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina get permission to live in Munich or Vienna or Hamburg and work there, where we know there's a lot of these old, extremely aggressive Ustasha types living, isn't it plausible that they might become infected by this Ustasha virus, so to speak, and this will allow these older Ustasha groups to essentially recruit new, younger Croats into the ranks of the Ustasha ideology. And this is really their primary concern, identifying this, stopping this, and counteracting it when it happens. Other events conspired to sharpen the Yugoslav's vigilance. In 1966, Udba's all-powerful head and Tito's erstwhile successor, Aleksandar Rankovic, was ousted for allegedly wiretapping his boss and other functionaries. One result was that the Udba was decentralized. There was a federal state security service based in Belgrade, the country's capital, and underneath that federal state security service, there were six Republican state security services, and then there were also two provincial state security services uh, within Serbia. So there was a hierarchical structure to be sure, but particularly after 1974, there was really a lot of autonomy for the Republican and provincial state security services. A state or provincial Udba took the lead on threats to or within its borders. These branches would cooperate and coordinate operations when their targets moved around the country. And, under an unspoken agreement, each service took care of their own ethnic brethren, meaning the Slovenian service would be responsible for Slovenes, the Serbian one for Serbs, and so on. Udba's Croatian branch oversaw cases involving Croat emigres abroad. The greatest external threat other than foreign powers to Yugoslavia's state security is the relatively small group, but very active and very motivated group of Croat immigrants who are a very mixed bag of people. This is a, a group that combines several generations of uh, actors, uh, beginning with those uh, members of uh, the Ustasha regime from the Second World War who managed to flee abroad and who, of course, are, uh, first of all, extreme Croat nationalists, they're fascists, they're extremely anti-communist. For many of them, 
the uh, establishment of socialist Yugoslavia is the largest catastrophe in their opinion to befall the Croats and uh, a number of them from their hiding places in Argentina, West Germany, uh, Australia, and elsewhere uh, spend, in some cases, the rest of their days uh, scheming, planning, and organizing uh, activities designed to essentially destroy Yugoslavia and enable the establishment of a new independent Croatian state. The most prominent of these Ustashakrads were Ante Pavlic and Vjekoslav Lubovic. Pavlic was the leader of the wartime independent state of Croatia. He escaped to Argentina, where he remained politically active and where the Udba attempted to assassinate him in 1957. He survived the attack and fled to Spain, where he died two years later. Luburic had overseen the Ustasha concentration camps. He fled to Spain, where he too continued his work to overthrow Yugoslavia. Having survived several assassination attempts, including by the Mossad, in 1967 Luburic was bludgeoned to death with an axe and a metal rod. Like the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956, the Warsaw Pact invasion in 1968 of my native Czechoslovakia revived fears of the Soviets invading Yugoslavia as well, or at least supporting anti-Yugoslav emigres in their drive to undermine the country. As part of its non-aligned stance, Yugoslavia established cooperation with countries in the Third World, including on the military and intelligence levels, where the Udbashi were training and assisting intelligence and security services in, for example, the Middle East and in Africa. The Yugoslav State Security Service, in defending its interests abroad, actually by the 1960s, starts to a limited extent to cooperate with Western intelligence services. That's something that's quite unique among communist security services. The Yugoslav State Security Service, while it always had an adversarial relationship with the West German, US, and other Western intelligence services, actually, because of this issue of emigres, ends up to a significant extent also cooperating with them to thwart emigre threats to Yugoslav state security. One of the reasons this cooperation existed is because, despite their ideological, very strong ideological differences, the Americans and the Australians and the Germans and the Austrians could see that, hey, we also don't like the notion that people on the territory of our states are planning terrorist attacks. Udba's ultimate goal was for the exile's hostile activities to cease. The best case scenario for the Yugoslav State Security Service was actually for an emigre just to stop doing or planning activities against Yugoslavia. And if he or she stopped doing it, then there was a significant chance that the Yugoslav State Security Service would close that person's case and everybody would move on. The Udba used all kinds of methods to pacify these threats. Informants, wiretapping, surveillance, and other information-gathering methods, often designed to intimidate the targets into quitting. Disinformation campaigns aimed at discrediting people or sowing discord within emigre groups. More involved operations included kidnapping people and smuggling them into Yugoslavia to be persecuted there. And the most important thing that it was possible to show using the documentation of the Yugoslav State Security Service itself, that they in fact, in their toolbox, so to speak, included as a weapon of last resort, the actual assassination of emigres. And, and that was unfortunately the case also for Jurekovic. It wasn't necessarily Udba agents who carried out these so-called neutralizations. 
The former head of Udba's Belgrade branch, Dusan Stupar, has repeatedly said that the state security service used members of the criminal underground for the carrying out of certain tasks abroad. There are certainly cases, and the Jurekovic case appears to be one of them, in which the Yugoslav State Security Service cooperated with, uh, hired, as it were, uh, or outsourced, one could say, the actual killing of the target to organized criminals who were Yugoslav citizens and who were very active in the criminal underworld in countries like West Germany as a way of providing plausible deniability to the Yugoslav State Security Service. In other words, if the operation, if the actual assassination went wrong, and let's say the killer were caught red-handed, then the killer would not be uh, an actual agent of the Yugoslav State Security Service, but would be a Yugoslav gangster, organized criminal type To my knowledge, uh, this kind of practice to hire uh, criminals uh, went back to the 60s. Maria Vivod is an anthropologist researching folk medical practices in Vojvodina and connections between the Serbian state and the criminal underworld. She is the author of The Master and Its Servants, The Entangled Web Between the Serbian Secret Service, Organized Crime and Paramilitary Units in the Yugoslav Conflict. According to the the saying, uh, uh, bitter uh, herbs on bitter wounds, or the, uh, the Latin, similia similibur, curantor. You treat the problem with the same kind of uh, remedy. So uh, the, these dissidents, political dissidents, were uh, considered as criminals to the, the socialist uh, Yugoslavia. So why not employ criminals to deal with them? This period of time also coincided uh, with uh, the rise of the sons of the political heads, communist functionaries. Their parents participated uh, in the revolution uh, during the Second World War, and they procreated, of course, children who were at ripe age in, during the 60s or the beginning of the 70s. So these so-called kids had access to a good life and uh, to travel abroad, and they were the one who often engaged in illicit trade or illicit activities uh, for themselves, but also for the state security apparatus. I will mention the example of Arkan. He was the son of a party uh, member, high-ranking member, and he was already problematic during his teenage years. Željko Rajnatović, best known under his nickname Arkan, was born in 1952, shortly after Stepan Jurekovic graduated from university. He was first arrested at the age of 14 in 1966 in Belgrade for purse snatching in a park. In 1969, he was sentenced to three years for burglaries. In prison, he started his first gang. He was actually pushed into that arena of uh, working for himself, meaning the crime and criminal activities, but also paying his taxes, figuratively saying, to the state apparatus. So we will leave you in peace and quiet to do what you do, if you do some shit for us. So that second generation, the problematic generation, was actually getting ripe to do the, the business, but also do favors for the, the party during the 60s and the 70s. In 1968, students in Belgrade mounted protests to demand reforms. In 1970, Josip Perković, like Jurekovic, an economics graduate, joined the Croatian Udba in Osijek. 
The four-year political battle between national reformers who enjoyed popular support and centralist hardliners in the party, dubbed the Croatian Spring, ended in 1971 with the regime purging reformers and cracking down on protesters. One of those arrested was Croatia's future president, Franjo Tuđman. While the reformers in Croatia were silenced, Croats abroad kept fighting. From the late 1950s, and especially in the 1960s, the Ustasha exiles started to retire or die out, or be killed off, as the case may be, and another generation of emigre Croats emerged. Disillusioned by the lack of progress made toward Yugoslavia's destruction and Croatia's independence, this younger, more radical generation decided the only way to achieve those goals was armed struggle. To fight quote-unquote serbo-communist Yugoslavia's violence, they had to use revolutionary, guerrilla-style violence themselves. Beginning in 1962, they bombed trains, planes, and Yugoslav embassies and offices and other locations, including inside Yugoslavia. They hijacked planes, they took hostages, they assassinated Yugoslav diplomats. They were so prolific that Mate Nikola Tokic, in his book that's actually a perfect companion to Nielsen's, Croatian Radical Separatism and Diaspora Terrorism During the Cold War, out last year from Purdue University Press, placed them among the most dynamic terrorists of the second half of the 20th century. Worldwide, anti-Yugoslav Croats committed on average one act of terror every five weeks between 1962 and 1980, Tokic adds. They also conducted guerrilla incursions into Yugoslavia. The more dramatic one took place in the summer of 1972. In Operation Phoenix, a group of 19 heavily armed Croat emigres penetrated Yugoslavia from Austria to launch a popular uprising against the socialist regime. They hijacked a truck, drove it to the mountains near Bugojno in central Bosnia and Herzegovina, and attempted to rouse the locals into rising up. The Bugojno group were met with apathy and hostility, and after they attacked police and military stations, also 30,000 Yugoslav troops, reservists and police, which took a month to crush the incursion, while the locals thought all the gunfire was part of filming a World War II partisan movie. 15 insurgents and 13 soldiers died. Allegedly beside himself with rage, I mean, what an embarrassment, Tito decreed a so-called special war against Yugoslavia's enemies abroad. This entailed hunting down the most dangerous ones around the world. In all, between 1946 and 1990, the UDBA eliminated dozens of Croat separatists abroad, estimates range from at least 60 to 73 to at least 80, and attempted many more assassinations. Most of the killings, and there were several of Serbs and Kosovo Albanians and others as well, remain unsolved to date. And in some of them, such as the 1972 assassination of the Croat terrorist Stepan Ševo near Venice, or the 1977 assassination of the Serb nationalist Dragiša Kašiković in Chicago, innocent bystanders, including children, died as well. The assassinations which were perpetrated were criminal acts, but we should also note that many of the people who were targeted by the Yugoslav State Security Service were in fact involved in perpetrating activities which were what we would clearly call terrorist acts. Yugoslavia's retaliation for the terrorist attacks prompted escalation and activity by the separatists and so on in a vicious cycle of violence. One important thing to note in all this. There are many, many, many Croats and and other Yugoslav emigres, and, and certainly a majority of them, who never get involved in any extreme activities. So I think one mistake that we need to avoid is somehow tarring Croat emigres as a whole or Serb emigres or any other emigre group for that matter as a whole with the brush of, you know, extremism. The year the special war started was also the year Arkan was released from prison and arrested again for a robbery. 
He escaped and fled to the West, where he went on a crime spree throughout the 70s and early 80s, committing burglaries, armed robberies, and murders in France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Sweden, and West Germany. His signature was a red rose left behind on the scene. He was caught and escaped from prison a number of times. Arkan's father, a high-ranking Yugoslav military officer, attempted to lure him out of the life of crime by getting him a job in the Udba. This backfired. Arkan became Udba's hitman, killing 7 to 12 dissidents in the decade from 1979. In exchange, the Udba provided Arkan with money, weapons, documents, and assistance in escaping from prison. They also let him keep his loot. The same year Arkan became Udba's hitman, Josip Perkovic was transferred to Zagreb and installed as the head of the department dealing with emigres. Right after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the Yugoslav State Security Service was really worried that as soon as Tito died, the Soviet Union might finally invade Yugoslavia and, as it were, get revenge for uh, 1948. And there were, you know, people in Yugoslavia and, of course, people who had emigrated who were pro-Soviets and who might, in the view of the Yugoslav State Security Service, come back and be the vanguard of a new pro-Soviet Yugoslavia. Tito's death in, in 1980 has enormous implications also for the state security service. In 1981, Kosovo erupted in riots, protesting the status and treatment of the Albanian community. The government declared martial law and crushed the uprising. The Udba stepped up the pursuit of Kosovo-Albanian nationalists. By contrast, the death of Dusko Popov, the Serbian James Bond, later that year in France, went unnoticed. We then have that final uh, very tense and very troubled decade where as we see in the Yugoslav State Security Service as well, uh, everyone is kind of trying to figure out how to reposition themselves in a Yugoslavia where there is really no single supreme leader left. As the 1980s progressed, disputes among the republics intensified, acquiring in the latter half distinct nationalist tones. The work of the Yugoslav and Western governments left the separatist Croat emigres severely weakened. But the war continued. Between 1980 and 1989, the Udba neutralized as many as 18 Croat emigres. There were assassinations in France, in Italy, Belgium, a number of other countries. But the fact of the matter is that the largest number of assassinations and attempted assassinations of Croat emigres by the Yugoslav State Security Service that we know of was in West Germany, which is explained at least in part by the, the relatively large number of emigre Croats uh, that was living in West Germany. And one of these people who was assassinated was uh, the Croat businessman Stjepan Djurekovic. INA, I-N-A, Industria Nafte, or Oil Industry, was established in 1964, the same year Zdravko Mustach joined the Udba. As an oil and gas company, INA was of strategic interest in Yugoslavia. And as the largest Croatian company and a major generator of foreign currency, it was also a tool in the political disputes between Croat and Serb elites, particularly in the 1980s. In 1982, Mustach took over as the Croatian Udba's chief. That year, inflation in Yugoslavia reached 40%, Unemployment was over 14%, the country owed 20 billion American dollars to foreign creditors, and the GDP growth flatlined. Shortages of basic goods, including petrol, were getting worse. 
As Ina's marketing director, Jurekovic traveled a lot for business, including with his mistress. It was on one of these trips in June 1982 that he applied for political asylum in West Germany. As he settled in Munich, Jurekovic soon got involved in the local Croatian community. Munich and Bavaria were a center of hostile political activity against socialist Yugoslavia, including people plotting or even conducting terrorist attacks. Infiltrated as the emigres were by the UDBA, within weeks, Jurekovic re-emerged on the Yugoslav state security's radar. It's really quite amazing when one looks at a place like Munich, if you read as many of these dossiers and case files as I've read, you kind of at some point get the impression that it was almost impossible for, let's say, five or more Croats to meet in the 1960s, 70s, or 80s, and for there not to be at least one of those five, and sometimes even more than one, who were reporting back to the Yugoslav State Security Service. There's both positive and negative incentives that explain why someone might want to cooperate with the Yugoslav State Security Service. So if we take, for example, uh, Yugoslav citizens living in, let's say, Munich, there's people there who are coming there as guest workers, maybe come from communist or partisan backgrounds who are perhaps in a position that they see activities which they recognize as being suspicious or threatening towards Yugoslav state interests, and who out of patriotic, let's call it motivation, uh, approach the Yugoslav consulate and say, listen, I think you guys need to know, uh, I have a tip about some people planning something that I think is, is, is wrong. As is the case with other intelligence services, there is also an interesting case of unwitting informants. This could be something that on the surface is completely innocuous. You know, uh, someone calls someone in Munich and says, um, hey, uh, we're looking for this guy. He's my cousin from Osijek. You know, I heard he's in Munich. Can you help me find him? And that person, you know, is thinking, hey, oh, you know, I just want to help this guy find his cousin and isn't aware that he's actually helping the Yugoslav State Security Service find somebody who, in the worst case, might end up as the victim of, of an assassination. In many cases, uh, perhaps most cases, uh, it's the other way around, which is to say that the uh, informants are uh, rather identified by the Yugoslav State Security Service who leverage various types of uh, compromising material. I mean, the Russians to this day talk about kompromat that they may have that will allow them to essentially convince slash pressure slash blackmail that person into becoming an informant. There's also the full-blown informants who are assigned some kind of code name, who meet with a handler, and who for a period that can range from weeks to many years provide uh, information to the Yugoslav State Security Service about emigre activities. Again, most of these people are themselves emigres. One of such informants in the Croat emigre community in Munich, including on Jurekovic, was a man named Krunoslav Prates. Thanks in part to information supplied by Prates, the UDBA promptly initiated operational processing of Jurekovic, that is, opened a dossier on him. In Munich, Jurekovic also started a printing shop and published five incendiary scathing books he had secretly written back home about Yugoslavia's leadership and their mismanagement. Titles included Communism, a Grand Deception, The Collapse of Ideals, and Yugoslavia in Crisis. He also published shorter works, anti-Yugoslav booklets and brochures, sample title How Yugoslavia is Robbing Croatia. 
Not only did he distribute thousands of copies within the local Croat community, he mailed copies to journalists back home. He gave interviews to emigre and West German newspapers and speeches to emigre organizations. He planned to start a radio station to beam hostile propaganda to Yugoslavia. And he was in contact with what the Udba called the extreme portion of the emigration, that is, people plotting terrorist attacks. What also emerged was that since 1975, Jurekovic had been an informant for the Bundesnachrichtendienst, or the BND, West Germany's civilian intelligence service, potentially supplying them with insider information about Yugoslavia's oil supply, including the locations of secret oil depots and the Yugoslav military's fuel requirements. The spooks at home also uncovered Jurekovic's alleged financial misdeeds at the INA. As INA's top manager, Jurekovic also knew about the alleged criminal activities of his colleague Vanya Špiliak, the son of Mika, a member of the Yugoslav presidency. A separate investigation into the accounting and hard currency goings-on at the INA was also conducted as a sensitive security matter. A scandal in Croatia's biggest corporation would have been a huge embarrassment for Croatian and Yugoslav leadership and stoked into a Republican conflict at the time citizens were experiencing fuel shortages. The Udba's interest in and their dossier on Jurekovic grew, as they saw him engaging in hostile and otherwise criminal activities against socialist Yugoslavia. A traitor, a thief, and a potential terrorist, that's what Jurekovic was to the Udba. As Jurekovic rose in prominence within Munich's Croat emigre community, he began to fear for his safety. He moved every few weeks and he hired bodyguards for protection. He wasn't wrong. The Udba monitored him through their networks of informants, including Prates. They conducted disinformation campaigns to discredit him among the emigres, and they were in fact preparing to move against him in order to stop his works. But, as was the case in all other operations like this one... This is not the case where, if you read all of the available documentation, and, and this goes for a number of other assassinations that the Yugoslav State Security Service carried out, it's not that you're sitting there and suddenly they say on page 1038, on this and this day, we went and we uh, hired some guys who went and killed the target. Uh, a lot of the documentation is circumstantial and they never specifically, explicitly state, we, the Yugoslav State Security Service, have executed or have assassinated this particular person. But when you put it all together, and it's very much like putting a very, very large and very complicated puzzle together, then it becomes incontrovertibly clear uh, and conclusive that the Yugoslav State Security Service was, in fact, involved not just once, but on many occasions in uh, assassinating those immigrants who they believed to pose the greatest danger to the state security of Yugoslavia. It was up to indirect, indeed circumstantial evidence and trial witness testimony to determine what transpired. Krunoslav Prates, the informant, gave his handler, Josip Perkovic, details of Jurekovic's schedule. He also gave Perkovic a duplicate key to Jurekovic's garage in Wolfratshausen. Perkovic then delivered the key to the ops team. On July 28, 1983, Jurekovic left his apartment in Munich to run some errands, including at his print shop. To lose any potential tails, he drove a circuitous route and parked a few blocks from the garage. As he entered the garage, which only had a single light bulb, he left the door open. He was unaware of the two, possibly three men hiding inside. The article he came to photocopy concluded with the words, The only thing I am afraid of is that the Udba will from now on even more relentlessly search for me in order to kill me. But I do not fear death, but only that they will thereby make it impossible for me to return, together with our people, to a free Croatian state and to partake of that great moment of our national history. 
As Jurekovic turned to leave, the assailants fired eight shots at him, five of which hit but did not kill him. They finished him off with a sharp object, possibly a meat cleaver. They closed the door on their way out. Their identity remains unknown. There are a number of theories regarding who the actual perpetrators are of Jurekovic's assassination. One theory has it that Arkan himself was involved. Stupar, the Belgrade Udba man, later testified that Arkan had told him directly that he was involved in the operation against Jurekovic. According to another former agent's testimony, two other men pulled the trigger. At any rate, the operation followed Udba's playbook. Using informants and surveillance, the Udba monitored the target's activities. They used disinformation to stoke discord among emigre factions so that they could then blame the target's death on the internal settling of accounts in the extreme emigre circles. And they hired criminals to kill the target at close range using a 7.65mm Beretta pistol. Three months after Jurekovic's murder, his file was closed. Listed under Reasons for the Cessation of Processing, Processing is deleted because Jurekovic has died. In 1986, Slobodan Milosevic took over the Serbian Communist Party. Josip Perković was promoted once again, becoming the director of the UDBA in Croatia. And Zdravko Mustač transferred to Belgrade to head the federal UDBA. Fearful he might suffer the same fate as his father, Stepan Jurekovic's son, Damir, moved from Germany to Canada where he blended into the Croat community in Calgary and planned to complete the books his father had started. In 1987, Damir Jurekovic committed suicide. That's the official version anyway. Local Croats claim he was assassinated by the Udba. The 80s are the era when the state security, the Yugoslav state security, gets greedy, gets hungry. Maria Vivod again, the researcher of connections between the Serbian state security and organized crime. So it's not enough only to deal with the political opponents, which is actually, you know, more or less useful, but it doesn't cover expenses. So they are starting opening firms. For instance, at the time uh, in Belgrade, uh, a great uh, enterprise was open. Uh, it was called uh, Genex. They still have a beautiful building. It was uh, organized and um, it served to gather the means, the money means uh, for the state security of Yugoslavia at the time. So this is the, the time when politics or ideology, it's not enough anymore. So people are getting oriented toward money. So this is the time when those who are hired for the state security are not anymore read. They are not really indoctrinated with the ideology of communism and socialism. They are actually nationalist. While the UDBA was financed from the federal budget, since the late 1940s, it was also running hard currency slush funds to finance its operations. The money came from smuggling and shell corporations abroad. These activities expanded dramatically in the 1980s. A lot of these companies were fronted or run by members of organized crime. The state security, particularly during the 80s and still nowadays, uh, it's financed by willing individuals who are willing to open firms and create capital uh, money for the state uh, security. It covers their expenses, of course, but they also finance the state security. The 80s were the post-Tito decade when simmering inter-Republican disputes came to a nationalist boil. 
as Yugoslavia's final decade expired. The state's security still deals with its political opponents abroad. One of the most known examples of the time is Vesko Vukotic and uh, his assistants who uh, murdered uh, the Kosovar uh, political activist Enver Hadriu. Hadriu was assassinated in Brussels in February 1990. At the time, he was planning to submit to the European Parliament's Human Rights Committee a list of Kosovo Albanians killed by the Serbian government. So uh, they kill him, you know, and Vesko Vukotic makes a lot of mess, you know. One of his guys starts to speak about the murder, about the, what they did, and uh, Vesko is asked to clean up his mess. So he cleans Andrea, one of his uh, guys, and he goes abroad. He's caught in Spain. In 2006. He's extradited finally to Serbia, but the state security still don't have the courage to deal with him because he's one of the kind, one of their own. So if they clean him up, uh, that would be, you know, not wise. They keep on hiding him. And uh, he, of course, gets into trouble often. He's even judged in a local court for uh, for shooting at a person in uh, near Novi Sad. But everything is uh, postponed because, oh my God, he has a heart condition. <laughs> so he's let out and he's still among us, you know, and the state security protects him because he has a lot of dirty things about him. It's better for the state security not to touch him. The 1990 multi-party election in Croatia resulted in Franjo Tuđman and his Croatian Democratic Union, the HDZ, assuming power. Just as Yugoslavia and its republics vied for influence, within the Croatian Udba there were agents who basically don't like what is happening and who are loyal to the dying Yugoslav state and who end up going into retirement and are never heard of again. Uh, and then there are people like Josip Perković who, as it were, see the, the writing on the wall and decide that it would be best for them professionally and personally to throw their lot behind Franjo Tuđman, who of, of course is a former communist general turned dissident historian who becomes the first president of the independent Croatia. And people like Perković are instrumental in helping the HDZ get established in the um, early 1990s. Uh, they're also instrumental in uh, helping key emigres such as Gojko Šušak, who becomes uh, defense minister in Croatia, uh, and who was a Croat immigrant in Canada, come back to Croatia, giving them passports, uh, giving them safe passage at a time when they, in theory, could easily have been arrested and put on trial and, and sentenced to long prison sentences, which is, of course, highly ironic because now we have these very unusual bedfellows, extreme nationalist Croat immigrants, Croatian uh, nationalist dissidents such as Franjo Tuđman, who are becoming the new leaders of what is going to be an independent Croatia, are now cooperating with the very agents of the Croatian State Security Service, which viewed Croatian nationalism and them in particular as enemies of the state and had monitored them, harassed them, imprisoned them, in some cases assassinated some of their friends or associates, these people are now allies, and similar things are happening in other republics. The Croatian nationalists uh, and these emigres, they're in essence 
going to have to fight what is an existential battle against Serbs, the Serbian minority in Croatia, and the Milosevic regime in Serbia, both of whom are forming a a very powerful and dangerous coalition. And the emigres and the nationalists realize that they are very likely going to lose this fight or this war, as it in fact becomes in, in the summer of 1991. They're going to lose the war for independence if they don't have really well-trained military and police veterans who essentially know how to conduct not just a war, but one could say a, a dirty war. So you could say that there's basically a calculation. Tujman turns to people like Perkovic and says, look, why don't we let bygones be bygones? Let's forget about what you guys did to our guys in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And let's look at the future. Let's look at defending this independent Croatia that we've now decided we both want. So if you guys promise us that you will put all of your tools, all of your knowledge, all of your know-how at our disposal, we in turn will not ask any questions or initiate any investigations or prosecutions regarding the operations you conducted uh, against Croat immigrants and against Croat nationalists in Croatia uh, and abroad in the period up until 1991. This is a very uneasy marriage of convenience. And sure enough, by the mid-1990s, it really starts to rupture because there are quite a lot of the hardcore Croat nationalists who are extremely dissatisfied with having to forsake lustration, investigation, or prosecution of the veterans of the Croatian State Security Service. In independent Croatia, Mustaj assisted in coordinating intelligence and defense activities and was close to President Tujman. For his part, Perkovic continued working in state security services within the interior and later defense ministry. Meanwhile, in Serbia too, the UDBA, now in the service of the Milosevic government, turned to warfare and the criminal underworld to both conduct the state's business and to make money. They hired criminals to lead paramilitary units which would actually act for the interest, not for the country or the people, but for the state security. The state security cut a deal. You know, you can take what you want, but we want our cut, our share. So this is like a way to get resources from the battlefield. It was a way to get rich. It would be very wrongful to claim that there is war and there is war as a criminal enterprise because two concepts are very interlinked. There is a Serbian saying that uh, war is someone's enemy uh, or death and war is someone's brother. So war is imagined as a way to get rich or get better, but also to lose life. You understand? So war is not just um, a way to get rid of your enemies, but to gain advantages economically. So this came as a wonderful, stylistically saying, wonderful opportunity to get rich quickly and at home in the media to be presented as a hero of the nation. So it was an opportunity too good to be missed. So do the job for us. Clean Visegrad, for instance, for our Arkan and uh, keep uh, the business going. And that's it. We don't know. We don't want to know what you do elsewhere. One of these paramilitary units was the Tigers, led by Zelko Rajnatovic Arkan, who transformed his hooligan group into an essentially private army. Wearing signature red barrets, his well-organized units rampaged through eastern Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina throughout the war, 
gaining notoriety for killing hundreds if not thousands of people, mutilating, raping, imprisoning, and deporting civilians. Arkan made a huge fortune during the war from looting and from smuggling cigarettes, alcohol, oil, drugs, and weapons. The deal was clear. Arkan and his tigers will help the Milosevic regime with its military and financial aims, and in exchange do and keep what they want on the battlefield, and later run businesses in Serbia. Testifying as an expert witness at the International Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia in The Hague, Christian Axbo Nilsson confirmed that cooperation between Arkan's unit and Serbian security officials was very close. Arkan's unit was for all intents and purposes a unit of the State Security Service of the Ministry of Interior of Serbia, he said. People at the ministry running these units remained in Serbia's employ after the war, and some former Tigers fought in Kosovo in the late 1990s. Some units were scavengers. These units, for instance, Arkan, they took the infrastructure, what was um, big and easy to move. Oil, wine, fridges and televisions, windows from houses and doors, you know, specialized to get what remained after the big ones. So they were organized to clean uh, whatever was to be sold later on at markets, street markets. I remember there were looted goods everywhere, boats, uh, luxury boats and uh, art, uh, artifacts, um, whatever. You name it, it was on, uh, on sales and it was cheap. The Milosevic regime was organized in this way, uh, loot and li- let others loot. In her book, Vivot tracks the entangled liaisons between professional criminals, organized crime group members, and Serbian state security in great detail. Gangsters whom state security services had hired to do Yugoslavia's dirty work became paramilitaries, hired by the same security services to do Serbia's dirty work in Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina, and to make money for themselves and the country under embargo. Back home, the top paramilitaries were hailed as national heroes, serving the nation on the battlefield. But what the state security didn't take into account that these people will come home, they will return, and they will become an elite per se. So they came home, the the boys, so-called boys, and some of them became uh, encumbrant for the regime. Arkan, he was rich, and he started meddling into the cigarette business, smuggling cigarette business, which was at the time the business of Milosevic's son, Marko Milosevic. So he, he was annoying. He had to go. He served his purpose, and he was just, you know, encumbrant. The former common criminal, Udba assassin, hooligan, warlord, member of parliament, and businessman Jelko Rajnatovic Arkan was assassinated on January 15, 2000, while filling out a bedding slip in the lobby of the Hotel Intercontinental. Five days later, he was buried with military honors. He was one of many members of the underworld, some now respectable businessmen, to have been eliminated after the war. After Milosevic fell, some of the others were extradited to the ICTY, and many more arrested. But the connection between the state and organized crime remains strong. It's just new batches of people on both sides. Even now, today, it's a criminal regime. I might end up in prison for saying this, but uh, it, it is. This is a regime. It's oriented to take as much as it can during the 90s from uh, former citizens of Yugoslavia, you know, the Croats and the Bo- Bosnians and uh, the Kosovo. Now it's oriented to looting and taking from the Serbian citizens. Nothing changes, but there is no war, so they cannot loot at broad, <laughs> so they loot at home. <laughs> but that's a whole another story.
Josip Perkovic and Zdravko Mustach retired in the late 1990s. In 1999, Jurekovic's remains were reburied at the Mirogoy Cemetery in Zagreb. In 2005, German Federal Police issued a European arrest warrant for Josip Perkovic for his involvement in Jurekovic's assassination. In 2008, Krunoslav Prates, the informant, was tried and sentenced to life in prison for being an accessory to Jurekovic's murder. He is serving his sentence in Germany. In 2009, Germany issued warrants for Zdravko Mustach and a number of other individuals for the assassination. Croatia, which did not allow extradition of its citizens, refused to act, even passing a law to protect Perkovic and all that he knew that prohibited the European arrest warrant from applying to crimes committed before 2002. It wasn't until the country joined the European Union in July 2013 and under pressure from Berlin and Brussels that Croatia succumbed. Both Perkovic and Mustach were arrested on New Year's Day 2014 and extradited to Germany. Three decades after Jurekovic's death, both the man who at the time headed the Croatian Udba's emigre department and the very boss of the Croatian Udba were to stand trial for the assassination. The trial began in October 2014. After nearly two years, both Josip Perkovic and Zdravko Mustach were convicted for aiding and abetting the murder of Jurekovic and sentenced to life in prison. They were 71 and 74 years old, respectively. At the time, they were the only individuals ever convicted for assassinating Yugoslav emigres. Later in 2016, a court in Brussels convicted and sentenced in absentia of former Serbian Udba agent Božidar Spasic and two gangsters, Andrija Drašković and Veselin Veskovukotic, for the murder of the Kosovo-Albanian dissident Enver Hadri. All three men live in Serbia unencumbered. In 2018, Josip Perkovic and Zdravko Mustač both appealed their convictions, but the German court denied their appeals. The following year, both Perkovic and Mustaj were repatriated to Croatia, where their sentences had been reduced to 30 and 40 years respectively. The two are now suing Germany at the European Court for Human Rights for being denied a fair trial. The case is still pending. The question one could also ask is, why is it that there are so many other cases of assassinations of Croats, Serbs, and others by the Yugoslav State Security Service, which have not been, as far as we know, investigated and certainly not prosecuted with the same amount of energy that was applied to the case of Jurekovic? A lot of Udba's files were destroyed in the early 1990s. Both Yugoslav and Serbian Udba's archives in Belgrade remained sealed. With a lot of Udba's special program operations, we will simply never know. The shady stuff that Udba did all over the world certainly has parallels, from totalitarian to authoritarian to democratic regimes. The CIA has assassinated or tried to assassinate its fair share of enemies throughout its existence. Of course, now we do the business with drone strikes. Putin's Russia has in recent years conducted a string of well-publicized assassinations and assassination attempts. In every country, people die because they get in the way of the state's business, and sometimes in the states as well as the organized crimes business. This is of course not to make any moral comparisons among these countries. All of them do what they do to protect the state, to keep their respective countries alive, to keep the ruling regime in power. But questions of morality are pertinent. Is it acceptable for a government to kill its citizens? Generally speaking, not to mention in secret and without due process? The Udba helped keep Yugoslavia together in peace, and in one piece, until it didn't. So was a few dozen deaths, many of them actual terrorists, not worth it? Was socialist Yugoslavia itself worth saving? 
INA, the oil company, is still around. You can pump your gas at one of nearly 500 INA stations around Croatia and Central Europe. Next on Remembering Yugoslavia. It took on a policy significance, which I never intended, and which has caused me, you know, as you can imagine, tremendous remorse. What people should have been saying, hey, things are really bad there. Robert Kaplan's book, Balkan Ghosts, has had an unparalleled and multifaceted impact on former Yugoslavia. On the next episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, we'll hear about the legacy of Balkan Ghosts from the man himself. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information, sources, and the transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com podcast. Operation Goldfish is permanent, so grab your briefcase and head over to rememberingyugoslavia.com donate to make a swap today. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petric, additional music by Ian Sutherland, Cool Z, Mellow C, and Petar Argic, licensed under Creative Commons. Special thanks to Chris Deliso, Ian Sanders, and IB Taurus slash Bloomsbury Publishing. I am Petar Korchniak, over and out. <laughs>